You asked me what it's like to live under the Biden administration. I would say that the word that pops into my head is confusing. It's confusing to live under him because I'm constantly confused about what he's saying. It feels a little bit like an idiocracy to me, but I just think it's getting worse and worse. And we keep pretending it's not. And he's going to run for president again four more years. That is, to me, scary. Yeah, I don't think the adults are back in charge. Uh, I just think they're more willing to abuse power and better at doing it and understanding how to do it. They're willing to abuse power in a way that that Trump couldn't or wouldn't. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, David Harsanyi. David, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. I want to talk to you about America and the Western world more broadly, I suppose. Uh, some listeners will be familiar with your writings over the past few years in the National Review, in The Federalist, of course, a fine online magazine where you've been working for many years, uh, in Reason magazine, where they publish some of your syndicated columns. And uh, you've been writing about the state of America, the state of politics, the state of the culture for some time. And I want to dig down into some of those issues with you today. I want to start off by asking you, what it's like to live under Joe Biden, because he is a very curious figure. Um, the only time you really see him pop up in, in Britain, especially on the British internet, is when he's committed some terrible faux pas or said something he shouldn't have said. So he's become a quite comedic figure to some of us outside observers. I wanted to ask you what's going on with Joe Biden. You wrote a column a few days ago, a few days before we were recording this. The headline was, Joe Biden is not okay. And the hook was that very strange incident in Connecticut where he was given a speech about gun control and he ended by saying, God save the Queen, man, which was very peculiar, not least because the Queen is dead uh, and also because his speech had nothing whatsoever to do with royalty or anything like it. Why did that comment strike you? What do you think it tells us about what is going on in Joe Biden's mind? At first, I thought perhaps he was a big Sex Pistols fan, you know, uh, but uh, I don't know. He seems a little more conservative. You asked me what it's like to live under him. And I would say that the word that pops into my head is confusing. It's confusing to live under him because I'm constantly confused about what he's saying. And what, what I think happens quite often is he's given a bunch of talking points. And because he's older, he conflates them or confuses them or says something weird and everyone's confused. And we all pretend that it's it's normal or we've gotten used to it. And frankly, considering our last president, who wasn't exactly the most articulate person either, um, perhaps we are used to it. You know, it, it feels a little bit like an idiocracy to me, but it is what it is. And um, I don't think he's OK. I mean, he fell a couple of weeks ago. He was at the Air Force Academy. He fell down. His handlers said, you know, there, there was this bag there and he fell over a bag as if a normal person can't step over a bag. You know, and we all fall. If there's a bag there. We fall. So it's that, and it's every week there's something uh, that he says that doesn't make any sense or is completely fantastical. And this is setting aside the fact that he is a fabulous, you know, he's constantly making up stories about his past that are untrue. Now, to be fair to him on that account, he's been doing that for 40 to 50 years. So that's just normal. But it's, I just think it's getting worse and worse, and we keep pretending it's not. And he's going to run for president again four more years. That is, to me, scary. Now, I've written this numerous occasions. I would vote for a sociopath if they did what I thought was right in office. Like, I'm not, I'm not someone who cares very much about the, you know, how upright morally candidates are, or how smart they are. I mean, you know, for politicians, I just want them doing the right thing. 
But I think we've gotten to the point where with him where it's become quite a concern. So in this piece, you say that his mental faculties are deteriorating and that's clear to most observers. I think if you just look at him, he does often look very confused. He seems to forget his lines. He bungles his lines. I, I, I sometimes feel quite forgiving of that as someone who knows that public speaking can be a difficult task and, and one sometimes makes errors. You, you wouldn't want to rush to such a severe judgment on that, those kinds of mishaps, but it is notable that it happens with him quite a lot. And he's been in public life for a very long time. You think he would have sharpened those skills. Um, why do you think it's worth focusing on his mental faculties and the possibility that they are deteriorating? Do you think it's symptomatic of a, a broader decay in the American establishment, in American politics? Is the fact that someone like Joe Biden, with all his faults and problems, the fact that he's at the forefront of American political life, does it tell us a, a deeper story about what's happening in, in the American republic right now? Uh, that's a good question. I think yes. I, you know, I mean, it's a longish story in the sense that I think you had, you know, Iraq and then you had Bush and then you had Barack Obama and Barack Obama, I, I, I think many conservatives thought had uh, ruled like, an, you know, like a king, like he abused his executive power all the time. And there was a, re a lot of frustration. So the reaction to that was, let's elect Donald Trump, who will do the same thing, you know, but for us. Uh, and, you know. Then there was just mass hysteria in America and everything, from my perspective, everything got very stupid. You know, just the debates we were ha having were, are very dumb. For instance, right now, I'm writing a column right now about this, that, you know, we don't actually debate issues at all anymore. We're, basically, the entire debate is whether Republicans are going to destroy democracy or not. Like, that's the position of Democrats. That's what the entire debate is about, which is a very silly debate because, it's so useful for them that they pull in, you know, if you want a tax cut, they're like, well, this is going to undermine democracy. You want, you know, you're against, uh, you know, some kind of climate change legislation, you know, you're, you're undermining democracy. Like, nothing you can say that doesn't undermine democracy. And uh, so the debate itself has gotten very stupid. And because there aren't that many quality candidates, I think we're just stuck with these people who, who, you know, like Woody Allen's line about, you know, 80 percent of life is just showing up or whatever it is. I think Biden embodies that. And uh, he's just been around. He seems like he was a moderate so that it was someone that you could put to the forefront and beat Donald Trump. And, you know, now they're just stuck with him. Uh, Kamala, I just saw a poll yesterday. I think she's the most uh, unpopular vice president in American history since polling began. So I don't know if there's anyone else really for them to to turn to. Maybe Gavin Newsom out in California. I don't know. But there aren't a ton of quality candidates uh, for Democrats and very few for Republicans, too, I think. I mean, I, I perhaps Ron DeSantis is a quality candidate. I don't jump to those kind of you know conclusions because we don't really know that yet. Yeah, I want to ask you about uh, Ron DeSantis a, a little bit later. I'm keen to hear your thoughts on him. Um Sticking with Biden for a moment, I did want to ask you about Joe Biden's wokeness. And he does seem to be the first woke president. I mean, and, and it's quite surprising. I'm, I've, I'm always trying to untangle what's going on here because he does seem to be, as you say, he does seem to have been a moderate. I'm sure he would have struck many Americans for a long period of time as a fairly decent, solid politician who probably understands working class Americans better than others in, in his milieu, you know, certainly better than the Hillary Clintons of the world. Uh, I'm sure that's how he would have s struck many Americans. But it, it, it's very interesting that he has 
embraced some of the excesses of the woke ideology or whatever we're supposed to call it uh, in, in a very enthusiastic way. If you think about the trans issue, for example, he has Dylan Mulvaney in the White House. Kamala Harris writes a, a letter to Dylan Mulvaney congratulating him on 365 days of being a girl, which is would have struck every single generation before ours as utterly perverse and surreal and ridiculous. Um, you know, he had uh, trans activists around the, to the White House during Pride Month, uh, one of whom exposed his breasts and and that, that caused a big fuss as well. I mean, there are many issues on which he's embracing a kind of quite extreme ideology, which I'm sure strikes many Americans as odd. Um, what, what do you think is happening there? Do you think he's doing that? Why might he be doing that? Is this an attempt to appeal to a certain influential constituency? What, or does he really believe it? What's happening on, on that side of his politics? I kind of don't believe that he believes anything, really, because there is not any kind of um, policy position he's taken that he hasn't done a 180 on. So, I mean, when he first came up, he was aligned with segregationists. He, you know, he said things like on busing that he didn't want his kids to grow up in a racial jungle. Everyone forgets this stuff. And then, of course, he pretends that he is, you know, that he was marching with Mandela or whatever. You know, like, I think he just says whatever he needs to say. He was, you know, he was for a long time, he was a pro-life Democrat or wasn't, you know, he was on the pro-life side. I wouldn't say that, you know, I don't exactly know how far it went. But and now he's, you know, he's fine with abortion until birth. So. Um, I don't think he's a principled person in politics. And sometimes maybe being in politics for so long, you lose sight of what, what you know, the things that you once believed in because, you know, you're just searching for, for power and, and so on. So I think it's fair to say that I, I don't think that he's a very principled person. So wherever he thinks the center of the gra of gravity is on the Democratic, on the left and American left is, is exactly where he'll be. So if it's wokeness, he'll 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 land there. Uh, I remember during the campaign, for instance, it was like there was the defund police movement and he kind of uh, started to go in that direction. But then he realized it wasn't as popular as he thought. So, he, you know, he, he came back to the, to the middle on it. So that, that's the kind of guy he is. He's never been a very principled person. He's changed his. I, I, sometimes I challenge people to like there is not one pol major policy debate in America where he's had a consistent position from the beginning of his career to the end. Not one. So I don't I just don't think he's a principled person. More broadly, in relation to Biden slash Harris and, and the entire administration, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on the idea that the adults are back in the room, because that's the phrase that we heard during the presidential campaign. That's the phrase that we saw in, in much of the liberal media, the, the um, mainstream media, the notion that after four years of insanity under Donald Trump, as you said, everything went a bit dumb. It was a crazy time. Um, Trump was a strange president, to put it mildly. After all that, we finally had the return of the adults. They would bring normalcy back to politics. They would bring calm and and uh, you could run the republic in, in a, a civilized fashion once again. That doesn't really seem to have to be the case. And, uh, you know, we often talk about um, Biden's mental faculties, and I think that's a legitimate focus of discussion. But if you look at uh, Biden and Harris together, Kamala Harris does similarly. And she's younger than him. She's quite energetic. She's an intelligent person, but she speaks in the most extraordinarily vacuous fashion. Uh, she uses the most uh, uh, kind of strange sub-Oprah kind of therapeutic language, and it often doesn't make much sense. So uh, what do you make of the idea that the adults came back? Was that just a fantasy from the very beginning, or have they just proved themselves to be inept while they've been in office? 
Yeah, I don't think the adults are back in charge. Uh, obviously, the Biden administration is filled with people who work for Obama and so on. So you, you, it's basically returned to the it's, it's basically returned to the Obama administration way of uh, dealing with things. But Kamala is like a wannabe Obama type, she, the, the, the swirling rhetorical gymnastics, you know, and everything. It's very off putting. I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite surprised at how unpopular she is. You know, I don't like her, but it's I almost never like any politicians. But so I'm always surprised when people do like them. But I'm surprised for some reason that she's so unpopular because she just seems basically a cookie cutter kind of Democrat, doesn't really seem offensive in any real way that Barack Obama isn't offensive to me or Hillary Clinton isn't offensive. So I'm, I'm kind of confused about that, but obviously she would have a hard time winning the presidency, so they can't really turn to her. Um, I mean, th- these aren't adults in the room, but they are willing to abuse power. Pat- I, I get a lot of blowback on this. I just think they're willing to abuse power in a way that that Trump couldn't or wouldn't, mostly couldn't, didn't understand how to do. I mean, when you think about the student loan forgiveness program, for instance, it's a completely unconstitutional thing to do, in my opinion. And they just go for it. Uh, You know, uh, the other week, uh, Biden signed all these executive uh, actions, remaking the whole car industry, you know, pointing towards EV, cutting emissions at 67 percent, basically making normal cars that we have illegal in 10, 20 years. I don't know if that's going to last, but these are the sort of uh, executive overreaches, I think, that Obama really excelled at after Obamacare passed and he was unable to uh, do anything legislatively. So I just think they're more willing to abuse power and better at doing it and understanding how to do it and having agencies do it for them where they were just, you know, the Pentagon undermined Trump all the time, but you know they when, when it comes to uh, uh, this administration, they're on the same team, so it's much easier for them to do that sort of thing. Yeah, that's actually a very interesting perspective. That um, far from the adults being back in the room, they're actually abusing power in a way that even as you say, Trump couldn't have got away with for various reasons. Um, on the abuse of power, it would be remiss of me not to ask you about Hunter Biden. Um, another strange Biden. Uh, You've recently written a column uh, in which you say, look, they're just laughing at you now because we all know that Hunter Biden has scandals swirling around him. There's the Hunter Biden laptop tale, which uh, is very interesting. And the suppression of that story is even more interesting. And more recently, uh, Hunter Biden has come to a pretty sweet uh, plea deal, it seems, uh, in the courts in relation to his failure to pay taxes and his ownership of a gun in, in in a curious fashion. And then you say, as you point out, he's now, he's still swanning around the White House. He was at a big White House get together for the uh, Prime Minister of India. He's still at the forefront of, of the Biden camp and the Biden image. Why do you think they think they can get away with that kind of thing? What do you think that Hunter Biden's story reveals about the mindset, I guess, of Joe Biden himself and the Biden administration more broadly? They can get away with it. They will get away with it. And that, that's, you know, they don't care. Um, my, my problem with the Hunter Biden stuff is not really, I don't care about Hunter Biden. I don't care if Hunter Biden goes to jail or not, even though I think he belongs there. The thing is that first we had the suppression of a story that affected an election and it was undertaken by very powerful people who we're supposed to trust, uh, with sensitive information, with all, with our national security, with all of these things. They wrote a letter. They said it was Disinform, probably Russian disinformation or smack. I forget how, how they worded it when, when the laptop story broke that had all these emails and pictures of Hunter Biden. And some of them, you know, 
about perhaps the president himself as the big guy he's making money in this business, which means that he was, you know, helping leverage the family name to make a lot of money. That's corruption. I don't know if it's going to be illegal, but I think it's corrupt behavior if it's true. But the thing was, they wouldn't allow that story to really, you know, get out there. And that to me was incredibly problematic. My second problem with this is on the gun charge and the things that you mentioned is that Joe Biden, the day his son got off with a sweetheart deal on gun charges, is out there giving speeches about how we need more gun laws when we won't even, you know, his own son is getting away with uh, gun crimes that are actually serious. I'm a big proponent of the Second Amendment, but I think that the laws we have should be enforced more rigorously, actually. Uh, for instance, lying on your <laughs> lying on your background check is one of the things that Joe Biden himself in 2013 wrote as an important part plank of the Obama administration's gun policy that they need to AGs attorney generals need to enforce more. And yet he gets away with it. Now, what is what is Joe Biden going to do? He's not going to say put my son in jail. He's he's you know wrong, but it's clear that he got a sweetheart deal, and um, I don't know what to do about it. At some point, you hit you know you're the you're the attorney general of the of the nation and you work for Joe Biden. How are you going to force that person to institute fair justice? You can't unless you maybe you impeach him. That has risks involved, too. You could politically backfire because you look like you're, you know, you're just so partisan. Congress is always partisan, always impeaching people. Everything's, you know, people people get sick of all the scandals. So I, I, don't, I really don't know what what the solution is to fix that problem. I don't think there is one. I think they're going to get away with it. Hello, everyone. It's Brendan here. I just wanted to let you know that my new book, A Heretic's Manifesto, is now back in stock on Amazon. So if you tried to get a copy of my book from Amazon and you couldn't, go back there right now and you can get it. Or if you'd like a signed copy, we still have our very special offer running. Anyone who donates £50 or more to Spiked will get a free signed copy of the book while stocks last. To donate your £50 and get your signed copy, go to spiked-online.com slash donate. That's spiked-online.com slash donate. We'll also throw in a whole year's access to Spike supporters, our online donor community packed with perks as an extra thank you. Thank you so much. And now on with the show. So when you say they will get away with it. And I mean, they are getting away with it already in, in, in many instances. Um, what do you mean by that? How, how do you think that has become a possibility that they can get away with this? I mean, firstly, of course, there's the question of whether the Department of Justice is being uh, a, a bit lighter on Hunter Biden than it would be on other people. Some, some have pointed out that um, Kodak Black, for example, the rapper was jailed for three years for a similar gun offence to the one that Hunter Biden committed. Um, and of course, the mainstream media and the social media oligarchs, the role that they played during the Hunter Biden laptop scandal was extraordinary. I mean, really was one of the most extraordinary interferences in the political process by capitalist elites that I can remember in modern times. So is it is part of the reason they can get away with it? Because uh, there has been a closing of ranks within the cultural establishment, within the media establishment, around the idea that we need to save the republic from Trump or Trumpism or, or from problematic populism. I know you share the view that populism has its many problematic elements, and I'll come on to that. It, it, has there been a closing of the ranks against uh, the threat posed by people like Trump and in favour of the adults coming back into the room, which means that 
democratic norms and even legal norms, possibly, are being pushed to one side in the name of defending Biden and this family. Yes. Um, You know, everything has become a consequentialist argument, meaning, you know, it's okay to do it if you're going to defend the country and save democracy from Donald Trump. And now all the semi-fascists, as Biden calls them, which is essentially anyone who voted for Donald Trump. Now, that's extraordinary position to take. And the the laptop suppression was kind of the tail end of the Russia collusion thing, which is very similar. And who paid a price for that? Nobody. Nobody, virtually nobody in media. Many of those people won Pulitzer Prizes. Many of them were lifted up to higher positions than they had when they started. They, they were successful. I think it was the most uh, successful conspiracy theory in modern history, basically. Um, and even after we knew that it was concocted by the, as partisan oppo by the opposition, no one paid a price. No one said, I'm sorry. No one said we should go back and re-report this and see what we did wrong or not wrong. No, um, they don't even admit it, most of them. I mean, you had Jonathan Shade and people like that walking around talking about how Trump had been an asset for Russia since 1987. <laughs> and no one, you know, no one's like, oh, maybe we shouldn't listen to that guy anymore. Or has he explained why he did it? No, we just move on. And the same thing goes for all the people in the FBI and in and elsewhere who are leaking uh you know, leaking information or selective information to these uh, to these uh, outlets and so on. Or, or Adam Schiff, you know, who was uh, in Congress, who who lied about having tangible, real evidence of collusion, who is probably going to end up being the senator of California. There is no price to pay for anything anymore. It used to be different. I'm not saying I, I'm not one of these people who romanticize the media like Walter Cronkite. I think he was actually quite a hack in you know, most of the time. But there was some level of, 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 of journalistic responsibility, that at least the things you reported had to be true. I'm not saying they weren't biased, but they were, you know, they tried to get to the truth of things. Um, that's why Dan Rather was fired, for instance, during the Bush years and so on. There's none of that anymore. No one pays a price. So I just don't understand who's going to stop them from getting away with it in the future or now. Yeah, the media elites and, and the cultural elites, I guess, they do seem to be a law unto themselves where they can behave in any fashion that they think will be politically useful, regardless of whether it is truthful, whether it is uh, responsible, whether it re- reflects reality, which is what journalism is meant to do. Uh, what impact do you think that has on everyday Americans, Joe public, working class Americans in particular, the left behind, as we call them in the UK, those kinds of working class communities that are not taken very seriously and are often looked down upon with great scorn by the establishment, basket of deplorables, uh, as Hillary said, they cleave to their guns and Bibles, as Obama said, semi-fascists, as Biden said. I mean, each of these uh, leading Democrats have heaped bile upon ordinary Americans. What do you think the average American makes of it when the media behaves in the way that you've just described, where they can run with a conspiracy theory for a few years and pay no consequences at all. Do do you think it it just widens that rift between the public and the media? Oh, absolutely. I mean, polls, I think, show that as much as you can trust polls. But, and there's the thing, I don't really trust polls and most Americans don't trust. There's a huge vacuum of trust because of this. COVID COVID, uh, exacerbated that even more where you had these people who, who were science, you know, uh, public health officials, people you're supposed to trust with, with, the, with your life sometimes, right? And uh, they acted like a bunch of fascists. I mean, I'm sorry, but, you know, going in and shutting down a church 
without having uh, any kind of debate or vote even. Even then, you shouldn't be able to do it. And telling people to shut down their businesses. And what, what scared me about that was that so many people just went along with it all because they were scared. And that, you know, and that's the way you lose freedom, I think. But um, yeah, there's a huge vacuum of trust. And nowadays, it's it's really corrosive in the sense that I notice a lot of the people I know, you know, the government will say something and they immediately their reaction is to say that's probably not true. They're probably lying to us. I'm, I am, I'm pretty skeptical of go- government in general, you know, and I have been, but it's very unhealthy when you can't trust anyone because there are certain areas, uh, you know, foreign affairs, things that you, you, you have, there has to be some level of trust that, that people aren't lying to you because uh, they know things you don't know. They have expertise you don't have. But now I, I just think that there's a there's very little trust, and that that does not bode well for for the future of the country. Yeah, I, I've noticed a very similar thing in the UK, especially coming out of COVID. I have many criticisms of the lockdown policy. We had an example here of the police going into a Polish Catholic church and throwing them out, uh, which I thought was one of the most shocking incidents of that whole period. Um, but coming out of COVID and the last few years of politics in general, there is now a huge element of distrust and people are just, there is a growing cynicism, cynicism towards everything that is said by someone in the establishment, towards everything that is said by the media. And even though I consider myself a skeptic, I think that kind of cynicism can also be quite, un- I think there's a difference between skepticism and cynicism and it's worth kind of spelling that out sometimes. But then the other side treats expertise is in a religious fashion almost like that that they're un you, you you simply can't question anything science says which is obviously not what science is at all but um you know so that that part of it is also quite disconcerting because you have people who are just lockstep to whatever some expert tells them and they are always throwing this expert says this well experts have been very wrong about things and it's okay to challenge them but we have to come to some kind of consensus about what we're going to move forward with, you know, when it comes to policy. And part of that consensus has to be the laws of the nation and the freedom of the people, which seems to be just disregarded when we had an emergency just now. And uh, so, you know, it was I think it was really in the long term that whole covid lockdown is going, you know, it it's going to be seen in the future as, as a really pivotal moment in American history, I think, or the world history, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, OK, sticking with the theme of truth and untruth and and reality and unreality i want to move on to some of the questions raised by the woke agenda the woke ideology woke activism i know woke is a slightly controversial word some people say it's made up it's not real but it's a useful shorthand and i think most people kind of know what you're talking about when you use the word woke um i want to ask you about one issue in particular you wrote about this recently you wrote about why it's important to defend the word why the word woman matters. Now, I bet if you went back five years, you would never have envisioned yourself writing a column in defense of the word woman. And you give the example of uh, Samuel Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language, very well known here in the UK, of course, um, which defined woman as the female of the human race. And, And for thousands of years, that's exactly how we understood it. And you say in this column that over the past few minutes, historically speaking, that meaning has been completely emptied out and dictionaries have, the Cambridge Dictionary has even changed its definition of the word men and women to include the opposite sex, essentially, people who identify as men and women, but who obviously aren't men and women. So it's it's been completely overhauled as a word. 
Why do you think that's an important issue to talk about? What do you think such a willingness to manipulate language itself reveals about, I guess, wokeness and, and that culture more broadly? It's kind of funny because when I write something like that, I get a lot of uh, blowback that you know accuses me of being a social conservative and this and that. But for me, it's actually just about objective truth. I don't, and also about being told what words I'm allowed to use or how I'm supposed to refer to people. It's just not, I think we need to really push back against that kind of thinking, you know, and, and uh, to begin with, it's just this kind of like authoritarian lockstep movement towards here or there on, on, on definitions. I mean, that's one part of it. The second part of it to me is that I think that a lot of this trans stuff is just a mockery of real, real women. You know, it's this uh, caricature of what a woman acts like, which isn't even true most of the time. And it's a, it, I don't understand why pe- more people aren't offended by that. I don't really care what adults do in their own lives, but I do care when they invade, you know, they're, they're altering reality and making me try, <laughs> try to make me accept that altered reality. It's sometimes offensive. And thirdly, which has gotten me annoyed lately is that, you know, once you pull children into it, I think it becomes a completely different uh, topic. You know, you know, once you're starting to allow 11 year olds and 13 year olds to, you know, hurt themselves and and hurt themselves forever, basically, for the rest of their lives, because they're confused, possibly. I think that that becomes an issue for the nation to start thinking about. And it's it blows my mind that I have to argue about this stuff that 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 I that people are mad if I don't want a. Uh, prepubescent kids to read books about that normalized gender dysphoria, that I'm some kind of fascist is just insanity. What's funny to me is they have state schools, they trap you in them, and then you're not even allowed to have a say in what they teach your kids. And you're the fascist, not them, right? So um, so these are kind of the issues that bother me. It's not really like I'm not a social conservative who says, oh, anytime anyone puts up a rainbow flag, I'm going to you know boycott that company. But it does bother me that the it's right that the rainbow flag should be right next to the American flag on the White House lawn. You know, I'm not calling them fascists, but fascists like alternative flags that are actually ideological flags that you're supposed to now treat as a national flag. That becomes, you know, that's the kind of thinking I don't I don't like. There's one flag for the nation, and then we we're disparate, you know, diverse people ideologically and so on. But they don't want to allow that anymore, and they've tried to change it into something patriotic or whatever. And I, that, that stuff bothers me. So I don't know if that makes sense, but those are the three problems I have basically with this whole issue. Yeah. Well, you should see London. I mean, the number of pride flags in London is <laughs> verging on the sinister. I mean, they hang in militaristic formation above all the major boulevards in the city and they've, they flap from every bank and every corporation and every school and every hospital. It really is quite extraordinary scenes. Um, I, I, in relation to the trans question and how it depicts women, I agree with you really strongly on that. I think if you look at someone like Dylan Mulvaney, I don't necessarily want to single him out. There are many other examples where their performance of womanhood is so obviously insulting to to women, one would presume, and to w- what it means to be a woman, uh, you know, behaving in a very girlish fashion and squealing and screaming and the obsession with image, you know, that having the right hair, the right dress. And it almost presents this image that womanhood is such a flimsy thing that anyone can become a woman simply by clicking their fingers or putting on the right clothing or wearing the right lipstick. I mean, talk about a reversal of the great gains of the past 50 or 60 years when women won equality with men. Um, 
This question might get us into trouble because we are both men, whatever that means these days. But I did want to ask you why, given that it is quite clearly a caricature of womanhood and J.K. Rowling and many other British women make that argument very well, why do you think many feminists are going along with the trans ideology and in the United States and some in the UK, although we have a, a higher number of TERFs here, I think, um, are going along with the trans ideology, are willing to incorporate men into women-only spaces and into uh, previously women-only political spheres. What do you think that's about? Is that similar to the Biden thing where they're just feeling around for what feels politically right, politically correct? Or is there something else going on there? I think that's part of it. And people are scared. They don't want to be called bigots. You know, it's the usual intimidation in that way. But mostly when it comes to the left, I think it's about someone uh, once called it Selma envy. You know, they're always looking for a new civil rights cause. They always need to find their own cause because we've reached equality in that way here a long time ago, in my opinion. I don't believe there's any sort of systemic uh, bigotry or racism in this country. I just don't. And so now we're looking for new causes to fight for in this way. And that this is the cause. And people get so, they get so enveloped by it that then, then, you know, anything that those, the people you're defending want or do, you defend. If they're riding naked in front of children in a pride parade, you defend it. Like just because the right is going to be critical, you immediately defend it. In the same way, the right will now immediately say you're lying, no matter what the government says. You know, vaccines are terrible because Biden says they're good. Whatever it is, you have the exact opposite happening there. Spiked couldn't do what we do without the generosity of listeners and readers like yourself. Those of you who donate £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year are eligible to become a Spiked supporter. Being a Spike supporter gives you access to a whole range of perks, including discounted or free tickets to all our events, discounts in our shop, and the ability to bookmark and comment on articles. So become a Spike supporter today by going to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. So on the children issue, which you raised, um, this is something that concerns me too. I think the idea of putting children on puberty blockers is just morally wrong. Uh, preventing children from experiencing a perfectly natural, normal, healthy uh, transition into becoming young adults, I think, is is a is a crazy thing to do. Um, certainly, it's absolutely obscene, in my view, to subject young adults, um, 17, 18, 19-year-olds, to mastectomies if they are young women who believe that they are men, or even to other more severe forms of intervention, surgically or hormonally, that can change someone forever. And one of the things that worries me is that I think a lot of young gay people are being swept up in this, and the kind of thing that we would have considered an, an abomination when it was done to someone like Alan Turing in the 1950s, who was basically put on estrogen as a punishment for his homosexuality, which and it gave him breasts, it, it made his voice more high-pitched, it made him very, very depressed. We look upon that as an abomination now, and yet we do similar to young gay men in the 21st century. We put them on estrogen to correct their sex. Um, do you think there will come a time soon when we will look upon this as a great medical scandal, a, a, a moment of hysteria, and, and ask why and how society came to be sucked into such a 
cruel in many ways uh, 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 intervention in young people's lives. Do you think that moment's going to come? Or what will it take to bring that moment of realization about, do you think? I don't know. I, I Probably at some point, yes. I, I don't know when or it'll be, if it'll be in the near future. It is, it's weird because you'll have the same people who say it's fine to take puberty blockers because some 11-year-old is confused, but then we can't give them trans fats, you know, or like, you know, so on one side, they can be completely controlling, but on the other side, they, they can do whatever. For instance, kids, underage kids want an abortion. They don't have to tell their parents, but if they want to, you know, I don't know, do something unhealthy, you know, they smoke a cigarette, you know, that is the, you know, the end of the world. So it, it, it's a very weird, weird way to, to look at childhood. Uh, so I don't know, maybe, I hope so, I guess is, is my position on that. So it, let's talk a little bit about some of the pushback against this kind of thing. And here's what I want to ask you what you think about Ron DeSantis. Um, I find him very interesting. Um, I understand why some of his policies, particularly in relation to schools and LGBTQ education and um, the question of what kind of books kids are reading and so on. I think some of those interventions are very interesting. Um, what's your general view on DeSantis, is he the sensible Trump, as some people refer to him? Is he, is he the intelligent populist? Do you think there's something positive in his pushback against some of the excesses of this ideology? The thing is, I, I actually don't think that that populism comes very naturally to him. I think he's actually more of an old school kind of Reaganite conservative. So when he says like military industrial complex, it doesn't roll off his tongue. I don't think it's <laughs> like something that naturally comes to him. Um, I am not a populist, definitely not an economic populist. So I don't really love that part of his agenda. But overall, I think he's been an effective governor. Uh, I think his policies on schools have been good. You know, the left have, have been have been running schools this way forever. So when they say book ban, what they mean is uh, this is a library that is not curated by some, you know, uh, pink haired progressive administrator. You know, that's what they mean. Uh, so I like it. If they if if the left doesn't like what he's doing, they should support school choice, and then you can go and read whatever you want with your kids. But they don't, you know, and uh, they want to trap your kids. They want to tell them what to learn. So I like all of that about him. I don't. I find some of it a little just contrived. A lot of the populism. I didn't love how he went after Disney. I'm, I I think Disney was wrong, but I just I don't think it's government's role to try to uh, uh, punish people for speech. But then again, you know. The, the break that Disney got was given to them by government. So why shouldn't government be able to take it away? It doesn't like bother me as much as some other uh, more libertarian-minded people. It's definitely not fascism or anything like that. But I don't, I don't love the instinct of punishing people who disagree with you out in the private world. It's not government's job to do that. So in general, though, I think he's a competent guy. I think he – I'm not a Trump fan. I think he would be a better choice than Trump. I do – I don't know, though, how effective he would be in a national race. A lot of times I thought people would be successful and they weren't. You know, sometimes uh, candidates speak to people and sometimes I thought Rudy Giuliani would be a great candidate, but no one liked him. You know, so I, I, I don't know that I, I'm the one to uh, I don't have great instincts on who's going to be successful in politics. But I think that, you know, from my perspective, he's definitely a guy, I think, who would be an effective administrator and a decent president. So I I, I I don't support politicians, but I definitely like him better than, than, than I do Donald Trump. Yeah, I thought your, one of the columns you wrote about his clash with Disney was very interesting, where on the one hand you were saying, look, it's not necessarily great if, a, if the government is punishing a, even a corporation for, for acts of speech. But on the other hand, you pointed out the staggering hypocrisy of people on the left who are forever punishing 
uh, corporations who do things that they disapprove of, either by threatening to withdraw film projects from certain uh, states, for example, or boycotting companies or requesting that they be punished in some fashion if they don't cleave to left-wing ideas or woke ideas. Um, following on from the DeSantis issue, and you mentioned there the book banning question as well, I wanted to ask you about this because I get so many conflicting reports from friends of mine in the US where on the one hand, civil libertarians who I admire enormously will say that uh, DeSantis and other government actors are engaged in book banning. When they withdraw certain books from schools, that is a case of censorship and it should be condemned. And then you, I hear other voices saying, well, look, nine-year-olds shouldn't be reading books about 72 genders or um, how to masturbate or whatever else it might be. So where do you stand on that? Is book banning happening in schools or is this simply a question of what should be on the curriculum and who should decide that issue? Yeah, the la I mean, the latter. There is no book ban. There's there's a curation going on in libraries and some parents don't. You know, I thought I thought that a lot of these parents were exaggerating. But when you look at these books, there's a book, I forget what it's called, that that, that shows, you know, I think it's 11 year olds or 12 year olds engaged in oral sex. I just, I don't, you know, I wouldn't want my kids to see it. And until there's choice in school and real choice for you to send your kids to the type of school you want, someone needs to curate these libraries. So do you want bureaucrats to do it or are going to force your kids to learn, you know, about 72 genders or whatever it is? But it's not just the, the, the gender stuff. Uh, it's not like these libraries, like high school libraries in the United States don't have Thomas Sowell books in them, you know, but they, they teach Howard Zinn books. To me, that's the prob problem. You know, um, there is not a very good civic education anymore. People get out of school. They don't understand anything about the Constitution. So it's it, it, it's far broader than that. And this is why I'm, I'm for school choice. I'm not saying that's a... It doesn't solve all our problems. There are plenty of private schools also very woke in this country and, and so on. But at least parents should have a choice. So anyway, I don't think there are book bans. I, I wrote a column recently because I went into a Barnes and Nobles here and there is a table of book banned books. I could buy any one of them and hand it to my kid. Right. So they're not banned. <laughs> they're not banned. Um, they are easy to get. You can get them in a single day, order them online and your kid can read them. There's no reason they have to be there for all the kids in a school. I don't like this kind of censorship where parents go around looking for for you know a line that offends them and then banning the book. I think some of these books are fine probably. I'm not saying that all the books they want to ban or you know remove from the library are horrible, but parents should be able to decide. I think that's for their own kids. I don't I don't view that as book banning. Um one other thing I wanted to ask you on the DeSantis phenomenon before I move on to my final questions um, is in relation, he gets a lot of support from Latino voters. Um, he's quite popular in, in Latino communities in Florida. Um, and I did want to ask you about demographic change and what might be happening in America as a response to some of the excesses of wokeness, I think. You guys at The Federalist published a an interesting piece a couple of years ago. Well, it wasn't written by you about how woke whites are turning minorities into Republicans. And I think there's something very interesting that we, we're seeing a similar dynamic in the UK, I think, where um, ethnic minority communities are becoming increasingly likely to vote conservative and they see Labour as a, the Labour Party as a quite harmful political entity for its lack of commitment to family values, for example, or community values. We've recently seen in the US um, extraordinary protests outside schools, which have been multicultural in the truest sense of the word. You've got white Christians, uh, Muslim mothers in the hijab, 
um, Armenian fathers, Latino parents and Latino kids coming together to say, look, um, stick to the three R's, reading, writing and, and arithmetic rather than the alphabet soup of LGBTQI, whatever. Do you think something interesting is brewing under the surface where minorities might be making a break with the kind of white liberals who in some ways think that they have ownership over those parts of society? Yeah, I definitely do. Most, I would say most immigrant groups or maybe all immigrant groups are dispositionally conservative. Like maybe they're not ideologically conservative. They're not reading, you know, Hayek or something, but they are definitely dispositionally, socially conservative. Latinos, you know, majority are Catholic, you know, I'm not saying they're all religious, but you know, they come from, from, uh, cultures and societies that are pretty socially conservative on most things. So it makes sense that when you go overboard on these kind of woke issues, that there's going to be some kind of pushback. Uh, but it is funny when people talk about Latino voters in the United States there, you know, it's not really one block of vo voting block. You have Cubans in Florida are much more conservative coming from a communist regime than, than, than maybe others are. So, uh, you know, you can appeal to different kind of, you know, different kind of groups in different kind of ways. But I definitely think you saw in Texas, there was, you know, there was a move towards Donald Trump. Donald Trump, for all the talk of racism and all this, actually expanded, I think, black vote votes for Republicans and Latino votes and all of that. And, and I think it has more to do with, with his celebrity and his populist connection to the working class, which is very weird to think that he connects better to the working class than some other people. But <laughs> it's true. As far as going back to the DeSantis, where you started that question, I think a lot of why people like him is competence. I think that you have a lot of incompetence in government and distrust. So when the guy makes some promises and actually does what he says and, and things are going well, and in Florida, things are going pretty well, uh, I think that, that that speaks to people a lot more than any kind of ideological position you take. So most people aren't like us, for instance. Like I'm always thinking, am I being ideologically consistent? Like most people don't care about that. They care about competence. They care about things getting done and that their ideas are being you know, manifesting in some sort of policy that they believe in. I think De DeSantis hits all of that in Florida. Um, and, it, you know, he has the legislature there, too. So it's not as difficult for him to do there as it would be in D.C. But still, he's doing what he says. So, David, my last couple of questions for you are about the future of democracy. And um, you and I probably have some disagreements on democracy. Um, you're not a populist. I am a populist. Um, I don't think we need to make that a great tribal divide and, and fall out over it or anything like that. Um, but I did want to ask you about some of the points you make in your book, uh, The People Have Spoken and They Are Wrong, The Case Against Democracy. Um, I guess my question comes from a starting point of the fact that in the UK, we have very recently used democracy to achieve something that I consider to be historically extraordinary and positive and wonderful, which is to remove Britain from the European Union, to remove Britain from a very clearly anti-democratic, neoliberal, oligarchical institution over which we had no direct democratic control. And Brexit, more than anything, has reinforced my faith in democracy in an extraordinary way. And it brought to life, I think, people's belief that they can make an impact on society, even through something as minor as putting an X on a piece of paper. So that's my starting point. So I just want to ask you if you could just outline briefly what your case against democracy is or what concerns you about democracy and its current manifestation. Well, I should just note that 
my prism when I wrote that book years ago, but still my opinion comes from perspective of, a, of an American, right? Um, though I think the underlying ideological points stand. I'm not saying that uh, self-determination and democracy are never good. I think that in the United States, especially on the left, but on the right as well, it's been increasingly the case that um, people want to centralize democracy from D.C., in a huge country of 300, you know, 330, 40 million, whatever it is, people with very diverse ways of living and thinking and dealing with the world. And that getting 51% of the vote, they think, entitles them to lord over the decisions and the lives of people who are, you know, who disagree with them. I think, uh, I'm sure you agree that uh, a vote democracy, some kind of majoritarian uh, decision can be just as authoritarian as a king making a decision, right? So I, I believe in the long run, too much majoritarianism is corrosive to freedom, individual freedom, you know, freedom of, of communities to live the way they want. And in the United States, there's they, we had a very good and very workable federalist system. It's one of the amendments even uh, in the Bill of Rights to have states govern them themselves, to have communities govern themselves. And yet, increasingly, it's become more and more direct. And it has never, none of these big, you know, overreaching bills, that, uh, reforms that Americans have passed, give people more freedom. It's always taking away some kind of freedom. It's always socializing uh, the country or redistributing wealth or whatever it is, it is never something as Brexit was that gave people more say over their own lives. In a way, Brexit wasn't even democratic in the sense that it actually took you out of a bigger governmental institution that diluted your voice. So to me, a federal giant, gigantic centralized government is the European Union and the states are Britain. You know what I'm saying? So that's how I view it. Yeah. Yeah. That that does make sense. I understand exactly what you're saying. Uh, what, one question I wanted to put to you in relation to this is, um, I think one, one of the points I've heard you make in, um, not only in the book, but in subsequent interviews about it as well, um, is that very often people get things wrong. So, you know, I happen to think that everyone obviously should have a, uh, the right to contribute to how the country is run, how their community is run and so on. But they do sometimes make decisions that are not ones that I particularly like. I came of age in the 1990s and I was just in a state of abject horror for years at the fact that Tony Blair kept getting elected back into power. For example, I was not impressed by his third way ideology or his nanny statism or his wars of foreign conquest. I couldn't understand why so many people kept restoring him to, to Downing Street so in my view, the people were making a bad choice. But isn't the point of democracy not necessarily that the people are always right, but through the act of engaging in a democracy, people exercise their moral muscles, their mental muscles. They have to take a bit of responsibility for the society they live in. They, they Pressure is put on them to weigh up ideas and to use their own minds and their own uh, mental uh, faculties to judge which ideas are good, which ideas are bad. Isn't democracy one of the things that brings the free individual to life in a meaningful way? So we might make the wrong choice, but it's the act of making a choice and having to take responsibility for it that makes us 
freer than we might otherwise be. Yeah, but why, why, does that ha- why does that have to manifest in a political way? Why can't you make choices about how you live in the private sector? Why can't you do it in your own community, in your own life that is uh, untethered from any kind of uh, compulsion, you know, to make other people de- live that way too? I, I don't understand. I think there's too, too many, I'm not saying you, but I think that too many people believe all of those things can only spring from some kind of government program somewhere. And I don't think so. I, I also basically came of age in the 90s and... Uh, you know, having uh, nanny statism, for instance, having a bunch of people say, well, you have a bar and you can't smoke in it, even though it's your property and everyone agrees to it. That to me was a, a, a democracy problem. And I'll tell you how I first started really getting skeptical of democracy it was music. Like I like certain kind of music that's not that popular. And whenever I see what most people like, it's it's garbage. Right. So I say to myself that the same thing goes and even more for politics, because people, especially in the United States these days, are not civically educated like they they're not sure exactly what they're doing so that's fine i understand that that's just how the world works but why have that kind of policy be foisted on everyone in the entire country why not just have it happen in berkeley see if it works and if you don't want it in colorado springs or some other you know whatever conservative enclave they shouldn't have to do it so i guess i i i just like a diffused kind of <laughs> democracy in a way but then, you know, we have a I think we have a stronger constitution than probably any other country, probably that is taken literally right in, in more than most countries. And we have protections for the individual for a reason. And just because most people say I don't like disinformation, you know, doesn't mean that they can they can cancel my voice. I don't care how many people say it. I don't care how many people want to take away guns from from Americans. We have a constitution. There's a way to change that constitution. But, uh, you know, it's a very high you know standard to, to do it. Yeah. And we envy your constitution, especially your First Amendment. Uh, it, the lack of one here in the UK means that we have extraordinary acts of censorship. Let me ask you, do you think it would pass? Do you think that you actually envy it or do you envy it? Or would it pass if there was a law, let's say, and it just had the First Amendment's word, would it pass in Britain today? That's a good question. I think the political class would definitely be against it. They are an incredibly censorious bunch. I think there would be a lot of support for it in the public. Whether there would be enough, I'm not sure. There is, uh, I think, a, there is a, a quite broad skepticism of freedom of speech, which I find very concerning. But I think having the argument for freedom of speech in itself is very important. And one of the points I sometimes make to my American friends is that it's possible the First Amendment is a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because it guarantees you freedom from state censorship, which is wonderful. It's, it can sometimes be seen as a curse because it becomes quite straightforward to defend freedom of speech. You can uh, strike things out as being unconstitutional. Um, whereas I think one of the great benefits of living in a free society is that you continually have to make the case for freedom of speech. And that's what gives it real legs and real meaning and real power. Um, so I, that's one of the the takes I've one of my hot takes that I give to my, my American friends, and I'm sure they appreciate it enormously. Um, my final question for you, David, um, is just on the issue of democracy and 2024, and what your predictions are. Um, it's, it's probably impossible to say. Is Biden going to be there? Is he going to still be be able to stand upright to to get words out of his mouth? Do you think the Republicans have a shot against him, given his performance over the past four years and the unpopularity of Kamala Harris? What's your prediction on what might happen in the next presidential election? 
I, I don't usually make predictions. I want to just preface this by saying that in 2016, I bet my friend Molly Hemingway that there was no way on earth that Donald Trump could win the election. And, you know, I lost that and it was kind of embarrassing. So I try and, I'm not going to make a prediction, but I will give you my thoughts in general. And that is that, yes, I mean, I think Joe Biden will be there probably. He could easily lose. He could probably win, right? I mean, anything can happen. Uh, it was I think Donald Trump probably would have won if COVID wasn't going on uh, in 2020. It's very hard to knock off an incumbent. It happens. It just happened. And uh, I don't know. I, I if right. It's just too early to know. Everyone talks about the polls and how Donald Trump is dominating. But it is too early it, at this point, probably in 2016. Donald Trump was probably in like fifth, sixth place in, in polling. Uh, we have to see how primaries shake out. I do think it's between DeSantis and Trump. I don't see any other, anyone else, you know, with enough traction to really make noise. Uh, then we have this whole thing with Donald Trump and his problems with classified documents and, and indictments and stuff like that. I don't know how that plays out. So it's going to be very, uh, it's going to be very weird as it has been over the past few elections, uh, presidential election year for sure. David, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.